Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Dr. Mauro Guillen. Mauro teaches management at the Wharton School of Business and is a renowned expert on the global trends shaping the future. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our new website, futuratipodcast.com. Mauro, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on. Well, I'm uh, originally from Spain. I think people will detect uh, an accent um, pretty quickly. Uh, but I've lived in the United States for 32, 33 years. And um, just uh, this month, I moved uh, to the UK to take up a new position there. And I am just a very curious guy. Uh, of course, I'm a professor. I do research. I teach. But it is that curiosity, trying to understand things, uh, what's going on in the world, what may happen in the future. That's what really, really excites me. And um, that's what I love doing. Yeah, during COVID, we all got thrust into this Zoom era. And uh, we're all uh, wrestling with Zoom and trying to make it work for us. So in your line of thinking, how what comes after Zoom? I think it comes uh, more soon, <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully better soon. Right. So I don't think we're going back to where we were before the pandemic. I think some people are thinking, oh, all I want is just go back to where we were. And I don't think that's the way the world works. I don't think that's the way history works. I think we need to be thinking about where do we want to be in two or three years from now, as opposed to how can we go back to 2019? And Zoom, I think, is going to stay. Hopefully, it will be a better platform, not as clumsy as it is. And it will enable us to have you know, wonderful interactions uh, over uh, a distance. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a strong believer in technology. And I, I think, um, you know, the experience that we have acquired over the last 18 months is going to stay with us. And we're going to make, you know, the most out of it. So how, lo- how long before we reach a point where meeting somebody virtually is actually better than meeting somebody in person? And what constitutes better? Yeah, well, I guess, uh, and forgive me for being so sarcastic, but it depends on whom you're meeting, right? (laughs) There are certain people whom I would prefer to meet in person. Others, perhaps, um, you know, just a Zoom meeting will do. Yeah. But I think, um, I think, you know, human beings, we are very adaptable. And if you tell me we have to talk from opposite sides of the river, well, we'll talk, right? We may have to yell at one another, but we'll talk. We won't be able to see our facial expressions, but we will be able to communicate. And I think it's the same over Zoom. So it's not the same as being in the room. We're not sharing the space. We're not smelling the same thing. We're not in the same, exactly the same location. And I think what is more important, I think, is that the context, right? So we're not in the same context. And therefore, that communication between, for example, you and I right now, 
uh, is missing that shared understanding of the context because we are in a different place, right? Yeah. Uh, geographically. I think that is more important than whether the quality of the sound or the quality of the image is perfect and what kinds of interactions we can do over this medium. Yeah. So a lot of what Mark Zuckerberg is working on right now is uh, one out of every five Facebook employees is working on the virtual world. And to what extent do you think um, uh, the Zoom world moves into this virtual space and we start having conversations in the metaverse? Well, I think it's one additional step in that direction. Uh, it all started, well, I guess, with the telephone and with email and then with texting. And then, of course, also before the pandemic, we had social media, right? So we were exchanging photographs, we were exchanging video clips, uh, but we would, you know, most of the time meet with other people and uh, have a drink with them or have a chat and so on and so forth. The pandemic, I think, has essentially forced us 24-7 to communicate with others at a distance or from a distance. And uh, it just changes everything. And, and also, not just to communicate, it's to work together, right? To learn together. Um, so we are actually doing things together over one of these platforms that in the past, of course, we did in person. Yeah, I think if there's a silver lining to all of this, it's accelerated a number of trends towards digitization and, and moving learning online, moving coordination online, which yeah, it does have some drawbacks. But I, I think anyone who was paying attention saw that that's the direction we're evolving in. And there's a lot of power in being able to do that. And COVID just forced us all to get on the same page really quickly. Um, I, I wonder if if you have any thoughts just more broadly about what the long-term impacts of COVID will be. I mean, what, what's the world look like five years out, 10 years out as a result of the pandemic? Well, I think, uh, number one, of course, I think uh, we're all going to be so much more conscious about uh, our, our personal sphere. And, uh, you know, uh, we may not be hugging people or shaking hands for a long time to come unless we know that person really well. Um, and that's part of the ritual, right, that we go through when we when we meet people. So I think that's going to have a very large uh, impact on the way in which we socialize. Um, but I think um, more importantly, um, you know, the two biggest, I think, consequences of this pandemic will be remote work. So I don't think that's going away. Um, you know, I don't think people want to work only from the home, but people want to work both from the home and from the office. So I think we're going towards a hybrid world in terms of work. And that is a very different situation from what we had before the pandemic in terms of people commuting five days a week, right? right. And then the other area I think is going to be learning. So I'm an educator. Um, and, you know, as you know, universities, schools, they don't change that much, right? Um, but I think we've seen the potential of this technology now. Uh, it was out of necessity. So now it is our task to try to use this technology out of choice to create a better learning experience for our students. And, you know, younger generations, they like learning over these digital platforms. Of course, they also want to go to the classroom. So once again, like in the world of work, I think it's going to be hybrid learning. And so I think we're moving towards a hybrid world uh, as a result of this pandemic, as a result of the use of all of these digital platforms. I think those two are going to be the biggest implications. Yeah, I've often said that um, there's no one-size-fits-all formula for learning 
if you're if you're going to be a bricklayer, you actually have to lay bricks. Um, and so, to uh, to think that we're all going to move into the digital learning space is probably not correct. But but a, a huge percentage of what we learn today can happen much quicker. And uh, I've often been critical of um, uh, kind of the way colleges are teaching, saying that we're we've been doing um, just in case learning. You have to learn all this just in case you might use it in the future. And moving into an era where we can we can learn things at the time that we need it um, suddenly it becomes much more relevant in the world around us. And um, that type of learning, I think, would be. Um, is going to be so much more in demand coming, moving into the future here. Yeah, I know, absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, let's keep in mind that human beings, we are very adaptable. And when we go through an experience as intense as this one, as dramatic as this one, we change. We, we try to adjust. We try to make the most out of it. And so... I don't think we're going to be behaving in the same way, even when the pandemic completely disappears. Right. Uh, let, let's stay with the theme of the future of education. That's something we, we just cover a lot. And we consult with some, some companies that are trying to build the learning platforms of the future. What are some of the pressures COVID related and otherwise that you see on the educational institutions as they are today? And given that you are an educator, where do you see that going? Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to build on what, um, um, the other Thomas Frey, not you, uh, just said, which is um, people have different learning styles. Um, so I think it's really important to keep that in mind. But above and beyond that, and I will return to that point in a moment, there is a serious mismatch between, on the one hand, the supply of education, how many seats we have at schools or universities, especially the good ones, and the demand. There is so much thirst for knowledge, for learning around the world. And so I think universities in particular, but also all kinds of schools have been essentially very slow to adapt to that. And we are not doing our job. Um, as you know, uh, the cost of education has gone through the roof. So I think digital technology may help us in several ways. One is to reduce the cost. Number two is to be able to reach students that before couldn't access education. Okay. Number three is also to help people, not just young people, but also people in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, even their 70s or 80s, learn new things. Okay. Easily. And then the other thing, which I think is uh, extremely important, is to help people who learn in different ways. And let me just illustrate this with something that I think is really important. I was teaching last year at the Wharton School um, remotely because the city of Philadelphia said no in person classes. And you know what? The most introverted students actually participated so much more when using Zoom when compared to the classroom, right? So the introverts prefer these technologies. They learn in a different way. They feel more engaged through Zoom than in the classroom. So once again, I think, like in the world of work, a hybrid model may be the solution in the end to all of these different uh, aspects. So is somebody coming up with a Zoom learning test to find out if you're better adapted to Zoom than traditional classroom? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Or we can just give people the choice and then they can decide for themselves. Uh, what is, uh, 
but yeah, I think um, I think um, again we're going through a big process of experimentation with all of these technologies. I don't think anybody has figured out what is the best way um, of learning of using these digital platforms. So I think we need to keep on trying out new things. We need to keep on innovating, and then see which things work and which things don't work. So right. MIT kind of famously pioneered the the uh, process of making their classroom materials and, and videos and tests and, and, and such available over the internet. Do, do you think that universities will continue kind of going that direction? Uh, do, do you think they'll begin to experiment with different ways of maybe accrediting classes that way? How, how do you see the, the interplay between those technologies and the existing sort of old world institutions like colleges? Well, I think universities will continue to have students on campus. Uh, you know, for undergraduates, the residential experience, I think, is formative, is very important. And for many graduate students, also, they want to network, they want to mingle, they want to interact. And, of course, if you're doing research in a lab, well, you need to be there, and so on and so forth. But having said that, I think part of that education that these students who are on campus uh, receive may be delivered through digital means. So that's where the hybrid model comes. That is to say that Maybe you do watch videos before you go to class, right? Um, but then there is the other dimension here, which is, yes, I think MIT did the right thing. Uh, so I taught at MIT many years ago for four years. It was a wonderful experience. I think MIT, as the pioneer in all of this, um, you know, did the right thing in the sense that knowledge should be universally available, right? And so I think anything that we can do to help people access knowledge, I think is important. Now, whether it's completely free or you should charge some small fee, that's another matter because obviously there is a cost to all of this. Right. But I will go one step further if you allow me, which is that I think universities also should get into the business of certification um, with asynchronous classes online, right? So in other words, people can take them whenever they want and they, they can sit in for an exam. On that material, if they pass the exam, then they get a certificate. Right? So I'm not getting a, I'm not saying a degree. A degree is, you know, another ball game. Right. But a certificate on something, not necessarily on computer science, but it could be in history, it could be in management, it could yes. be in, you know, biology, whatever, at different levels. So I think universities should get into that business to make knowledge more widely available. I am uh, I'm, I'm hugely bullish on the nano degree model. Are, are you familiar with the Udacity mm -hmm. nano degrees? I, I'm taking one now on, on using artificial in intelligence and in trading in trading like stocks and in, in, in the stock market. And um, I, I found myself a number of times thinking, I really wish I could do this for other things as well. Like I, I'm interested in, you know, certain philosophical questions and like uh, the political and economic history of China over the past 150 years. It'd be, it'd be really nice if there were a way for me to tackle that as well. And I, I think to solve a problem that's further upstream, would it would help if there were a way to coordinate these resources. So say I could, I could rustle up you know, 25 people who are interested in these subjects as well that are willing to put, you know, $250 towards it. Like, could we find a professor somewhere at one of these universities that's willing to kind of, you know, take, take us on for 10 weeks or, or 20 weeks or whatever it is in exchange for the money and then work us through this. Uh, I think the, the big problem there is that it's often very difficult and time intensive to grade essays in philosophy or history or something like that. Like assessing the value, assessing the quality of the learning is a little bit more difficult with those things. And so there's a bit more overhead and it doesn't scale as well, but it does seem like it would be possible to put a platform together that solves that problem. 
Oh, absolutely. And artificial intelligence may help us. Also, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but once again, I mean, I think we could have a model in which uh, there are excellent professors teaching certain things, eminently scalable if they tape those uh, lectures, and then they can be watched asynchronously by people around the world. Right. Uh, in, not just in one language, in several, because you could do automatically closed uh, captioning of those lectures. And then you have, um, you know, a number of people, maybe PhD students, maybe, um, you know, other folks uh, doing grading of those essays. So I, I, I think uh, all of this is possible with, um, with the humanities as well, not just uh, with technical subjects. Yeah. And again, the demand, the important thing for us to keep in mind is that the demand is so big and it continues to grow. And the supply is not keeping up with it at all. Yeah, one of the, the big arguments in the news lately is that, um, uh, well, Elon Musk and a number of other people have said that uh, we better focus on creating a universal basic income because the, the jobs are going to start going away and uh, we, we're not creating new jobs fast enough. I, t I tend to fall on the other end of the spectrum because I think that the technologies that are automating jobs out of existence are the same technologies that are gonna create the industries of the future. And, um, and so I, I actually think that we're moving into an era of super employment where we have uh, more jobs than we know what to do with. It's just that they're not gonna be full-time jobs. Um, I'm just kind of curious as to where you fall on the spectrum of future jobs and uh, and what what should we be preparing for in that in that era? Well, I think um, you know it's difficult to generalize. I think the economy will have many different kinds of jobs, uh, but I think you're absolutely right in that many of the jobs that we have today perhaps won't be there. Some jobs will be what we normally call professions, right? So people have yeah. a career in them, like a surgeon. Uh, now, uh, those people will be performing their tasks in a very different way because it's also going to be technology mediated, right? Right. Um, and um, I think we're also going to have a large number of people, as you seem to imply, who are going to be like gig economy workers, right? So maybe they have skills, but they sell their skills on a website and they work with different people and they collaborate every day with a different person to solve some problem for, for, for compensation. Um, so I, th I think we're going to see an explosion in terms of the diversity of different kinds of jobs. But what I think is going to be really important is what will prepare people for those jobs, right? And I think uh, for the most part, it's going to be, um, you know, people are going to need to know how to um, acquire knowledge very quickly, right? Right. Um, so presented with a new problem, how do you find a solution? In other words, then what we need, I think for the most part, will be people who know how to read, how to write, how to look for information, how to tell what is true from what's not true, and how to handle numbers and abstract concepts with, with ease. I think that's where the economy is going, right? I mean, these highly flexible, very, you know, um, well-equipped people, equipped in the sense of being able to acquire new knowledge, right? Right in the in the, in the spur of the moment. Do, do you think it's possible that with, let's say, mind uploads and artificial general intelligences and just algorithms as far as the eye could see, that, that it might come 
to a point where there's just not that much for human beings to do. And I mean, this could be 600 years in the future, but I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth on that and, and I try to get into the economics literature and not just have a dilettante superficial understanding of it. But I, I wonder, you know, you're an economist. How do you feel about that? It, it, it's, is it possible in principle ever to arrive at a place like that? I think we are moving in that direction, meaning that um, first we had automation and machines and then robotics. And now we have artificial intelligence and, you know, a lot of lawyers are losing their jobs, right? Right. And I'm sure some professors may also lose their jobs if we have um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, maybe a computer being able to teach people. Um, so I think this is a serious trend and we have to consider it very carefully. Now, uh, here's the issue. The issue is that some people will lose their jobs and will find it very difficult to find another job. Other people will actually see the demand for what they do grow up, go up because they, uh, for example, the artificial intelligence engineers or whatever it is, right? So I think the problem with all of this is the transition. How do we go from where we are today to that other world? It may take, I don't think it's going to take 500 years, but it may take, uh, you know, 20 years or 40 years or 50 years. But I, I definitely believe we're going, moving in that direction. And I for, by the way, I forgot to mention blockchain. Blockchain is another technology that is very likely to change the labor market because, as you know, middle management, which is millions and millions of people, can become redundant, right, with blockchain technology, right? All of the paper shufflers at companies, right, would become redundant if, if we go into smart contracts, supported by the blockchain. Um, so the issue is then, how do we handle the situation? And I hope we avoid um, the problem that we've had over the last 20 years, which is that we forgot that some people were losing their jobs because of automation in factories, because of robotics. And then of course they became radicalized and they started to vote for um, uh, populist uh, politicians and so on and so forth. Um, and quite frankly, if we are confronted by a big wave of so to speak, technological unemployment, then I think we may have to start taking seriously the idea of a guaranteed basic income. So part of, um, um, one, one of the things I ran into is this uh, game called Alien Worlds, which is actually um, people go in there and they do mining in Alien Worlds. That's part of the game. But when they're mining, they're also mining for cryptocurrency. And so they actually make money playing mm -hmm. a game. Um, and so this idea of actually uh, being able to play the game, play some game and do productive work at the same time, that uh, that has been intriguing me uh, ever since I heard about it. And um, and I'm, I'm curious as to if you've given any thought to how the gaming world or how you know society starts to morph as a result of our being able to simulate things online and to essentially game test things before we actually put them into actual play in the real world. Yeah, well, this is a, an approach to problem solving that has been around for a long time. It's just that now we have instruments at our disposal that enable you know, not just um, uh, highly trained scientists to do it, but pretty much everybody, anybody, right? Right. Um, so it's kind of, uh, you know, as usual, some kinds of technologies, and I think this is true of digital technologies, tend to democratize things. So it makes uh, access to all sorts of things uh, more widely available. 
And so I think what we're doing is we're going through a phase in which more of that is going to happen, not just at work, but also in our private lives. And more and more people are going to be able to do that because there's going to be companies that are going to offer solutions, right, for people, you know, simple apps on your phone to, to do those kinds of things. So I think I think the revolution will come from more people using these uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and of course, the, 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 the tools, the instruments for doing this um, becoming so much more uh, effective, so much more, um, you know, useful. Absolutely. So I think part of what you're sort of getting at there is the the need to lower the barrier of entry for people using these uh, blockchain technologies or, or NFTs or, or whatever it is so that you can you can capture some of the value of the network effects. I mean, a network is only as valuable as the interconnectedness of the nodes and the number of people that are using it. So how bullish are you on blockchain technology generally? And what are some of the ways in which uh, you think it could be used that might surprise a person who otherwise takes these technologies yeah. very seriously. Yeah, so blockchain, as you know, originated from Bitcoin, right? So it was the the, the um, uh, technology that was underlying the trading of Bitcoin. Uh, but uh, quite frankly, I think uh, the most important applications of blockchain are outside of the cryptocurrency world. And specifically, they have to do, I think, with smart contracts, uh, both within the firm and between the firm and its suppliers and between the firm and its customers. Uh, so right now, as you know, um, what we have is essentially an army of middle managers, um, you know, processing invoices or making sure that, uh, you know, the goods arrive uh, or ensuring that the payments are made and so on and so forth. Right. And, and every big company has thousands of those employees. The blockchain, right, enables, um, so to speak, companies to automate all of that. So the same way that in manufacturing you have a robot, right, painting something, right, um, whereas before you had a human being, let's say, on the automobile assembly line, now um, a company, what we can have is inst instead of all of those white-collar office workers, we could have a computer doing all of those things uh, based on blockchain technology. Um, so it is a very powerful technology. It is something that I think will destroy a lot of jobs. And it is, you know, the promise is that it may make the economy more efficient because the, 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 the speed at which transactions will take place will be much, much faster. Let me sh shift gears a little bit here. Uh, you've done a lot of work on the shifting demographics of the world um, and that the, the world is essentially getting much older and that um, the young people being born today are primarily being born in in Africa and parts of Asia. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that's going to permeate the rest of the world and how that's going to change life on planet Earth moving forward? Well, I think um, there are many different kinds of considerations here. I mean, one is, as you said, most parts of the world um, are not having enough babies to replace themselves, right? Right. Uh, that includes Europe, that includes United States, Latin America, and so on and so forth. Absent immigration, those parts of the world, we were losing people. But then there are other parts of the world, South Asia, Middle East, and especially Africa, where, uh, you know, um, families or women are still having four children on average. So their population is still growing. Now, what this means is two things. I mean, one is that, of course, their population will get bigger, but also 
that their populations will remain younger for a longer period of time, whereas our populations will become much older, right? Um, so all of those things, I think, will create a completely different situation. We're going to be in a very, very, very different world as a result. Why do I say that? Well, very simply, because it's not the same to have, as we will in the United States, 40% of the population above the age of 60, than to have 40% of the population below the age of 20, which is what, what happens in Africa, right? I mean, you're talking about com two completely different situations. So a lot of things are going to change as a result of that. Consumer markets, financial markets, the geography of manufacturing in the world, uh, the geography of trade, all sorts of things. Because um, once again, um, all of these changes are taking place at different speeds in different parts of the world. And therefore, you know, we're going to see a divergence, right? Some parts of the world are going to go one direction, other parts of the world in another direction, but we're still in the same world, so they will interact with one another. So hopefully we can find a way of uh, making all of this compatible, making all of this a source of opportunity as opposed to a source of conflict. Um, but, you know, uh, there are frictions in the world, and many of them are driven by these population pressures. Yeah, it, it tends to change the supply and demand equation when, <clears throat> when you have a declining population. And we, we really haven't had much experience working with that. Um, uh, kind of what, in your mind, what, uh, what kind of problems come to light that we haven't been working with as we, um, I mean, I always think of housing as when there's fewer people that want to buy the houses that we have on the market. Uh, that dramatically changes housing prices. Uh, what other things are have you been thinking about with declining populations that we we have are going to have a hard time adjusting to? Well, I think um, perhaps the most urgent one is uh, migration, right? So, as you know, right now here in the United States, uh, there's not enough people for companies to hire. I mean, companies continue to complain that now that the economy is recovering, they can't find enough workers. But right. at the same time, we have other parts of the world where, you know, people are completely either without a job or they're underemployed. And, um, well, as a result of that, those people see the economic opportunity and they want to migrate. But, of course, as you know, there's a political backlash against uh, migration. Um, so I think this is a very important issue that we need to address, right? So I'm not necessarily arguing for open borders, don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that um, there has to be some kind of a happy medium where there is some immigration and that helps essentially rebalance, right, the situation in those different uh, parts of the world. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think it's most urgent. But the other urgent thing, quite frankly, is climate change. But climate change from the perspective of how it will affect different populations in the world, because it's going to be affecting mostly, uh, or at least most uh, strongly, countries where the population is growing very fast. So then, as a result of that, my biggest fear is that we're going to see a big wave of climate refugees in the world. Not political refugees, not you know war refugees, but rather climate refugees. Um, because once again, the implications of climate change, I think, will be most uh, strongly felt in South Asia, in the Middle East, in Southern Africa. And that's precisely the parts of the world where the population is growing the fastest. Yeah, part of um, the, this whole discussion on demographic shifts has to do with moving across country borders and how easy and how fluid that needs to be. And uh, it seems like in the future, we're going to have to make 
make it a much more fluid world uh, to shift people around as, as they need to go other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the thinking that we have transportation systems that can cross country lines um, with relative ease um, could make things radically different. I mean, on one hand, we're talking about um, technological unemployment and uh, putting a lot of these jobs out to pasture. And on the other end, we're talking about our immediate need for more people because the the demand is so large that we can't get enough people. So it, it's uh, we're, we're we're seeing a lot of contrasting. Uh, um, well, the contrast between our predictions and what's actually happening in the world right at the moment. So I, f- I find that kind of interesting. Um, how do you think this um, crossing country borders needs to change in order to um, to meet the, the needs of tomorrow? Uh, you mean uh, how countries should manage their borders? Yeah, how um, just kind of the fluidity of being able to go from one country to the next. Um, yeah, well, again, I think uh, the extremes of uh, completely closed borders and completely open borders are problematic, right? Right. And so each country, I don't think there's a universal solution or best uh, policy for every country in the world. Each country has to, you know, find you know, what is, what makes sense politically and economically for it. And so, look, for example, Canada which has a very different immigration policy than the one that the United States has. Right. Um, and maybe there are good reasons for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, there, there are a, a number of different ways to potentially handle that, uh, the future of governance more generally. And, and I have two that I wanted to talk about. And I wanted to start with just special economic zones or private cities or, or charter cities, some of the things that fall under that umbrella of concepts. Are you conversant in that literature? Do you have any strong opinions about the potential for it to alleviate some of these problems? Well, I think... Um there is a, you know, um, quite a bit of experience with um, both in United States and in other parts of the world uh, with what you're describing, right? I mean, this started really in the 1960s with the so-called export processing zone. So rather than bringing the workers, why don't we create jobs on the other side of the border, right? And uh, that way the workers don't have to migrate. Um, and uh, if you remember the most famous of these export processing zones were the maquiladoras in Mexico, mm-hmm. right? The maquiladora program, which was extremely successful. And um, then it became obsolete when NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, came into effect. Um, I think um, it is part of the solution, but uh, it's unlikely to be uh, able to solve the, the entire problem, right? right. So I think it can, it can, it can help. Um, and this exists in many other parts of the world, right? Not just like in the United States, but the United States, uh, you know, there's a long history, more than 50 years of, of these kinds of things. But you see, now with the digital economy, it becomes so much easier to do that. Let me just give you a very brief example, which is, okay, American companies need to hire workers. If those um, jobs can be performed remotely, there's nothing preventing those companies from hiring a worker who lives in some other country. And that other that worker doesn't have to migrate. Uh, and look, I mean, it is true that some jobs, some occupations require 
you to show up physically at the uh, at the site, but many don't. And so, um, and increasingly, we have uh, more and more people who are doing um, you know office work, and that office work could be performed remotely. Um, so once again, if we go back to where we started our conversation. I think the immense potential of these new technologies, digital technologies, I think is going to fundamentally reshape the way we think about geography, the way we think about um, where economic activity is located, where the jobs are located, and also the need for immigration. It may actually reduce the need for immigration. In other words, that people in a distant country may be able to get uh, jobs, right? Um, but without having to move. And, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is a rather more speculative idea, and it's it's the idea of distributed nations um, or um, yeah. they're like non-geographical nations. I mean, in, in some sense, you have examples of this already. I mean, like Jews spread throughout the world via the diaspora. They all still consider themselves kind of, uh, you know, part of the tribe of Judaism. But I wonder if with blockchain technologies, uh, if, if it might not be possible to formalize that a bit more such that your allegiance to a nation might not be tied to where you're at at all. And the nation may not have a geography at all. And I, I just have lots and lots of questions about that. I mean, is, is that the sort of thing that is even feasible? Do, do people just kind of naturally feel some connection to, to where they're from and, and, and the community that they grew up in? Or is it possible for this to scale pretty radically? If so, what would the problems be? What might the, uh, the upsides be? Just feel free to riff on that for a little bit. Well, I think um, <clears throat> it would be great, quite frankly, <laughs> to find a way of um, overcoming uh, these, um, you know, what I consider to be a 19th century idea, which is the idea that uh, we all are citizens of a particular country in the world, and that that government in that country is supposed to protect us and that the government decides who is a citizen and who is not a citizen, and there are rules for that, right? So the world um, became organized in that way, I think primarily in the 19th century, right? And it was, of, of course, riding the wave of nationalism. So I personally believe that nationalism is a really bad thing. I believe that patriotism is very good, right? So it's good to be a patriot, but not to be nationalist, right? Because the idea of nationalism is that you exclude other people. So we are like who we are. But patriotism is about something else. It's like, I care about the people who share a history with me and uh, share um, you know, an upbringing and share certain traditions. That's patriotism. That's great, right? Yes. And I cheer for the uh, you know, Team USA at the Olympics and so on and so forth. But nationalism is different. Nationalism is this attempt to say we are different from the others and the others cannot be like us and they don't belong in my country and so on and so forth. So anything uh, like a digital republic, for example, uh, Estonia, as you know, right? Right, right. Estonia, the country in the Baltics, is perhaps the most advanced country. They actually offer people a, a digital certificate of citizenship in Estonia. So you're a digital citizen of Estonia, right? And then you can do all sorts of things online. So I, I welcome that. I, I think it's good. If it undermines nationalism, it's got to be good. Even better. Because I think nationalism, quite frankly, has led to unnecessary conflicts, uh, you know, wars and all sorts of things. How, how do you feel about the security function of a state? So you, you referenced a government needing to protect the citizens uh, 
that it has control over and part part of how it funds that is through taxes. So one of the problems I would see with a digital nation is just providing that service or do we default to using private security agencies that are geographically nearby? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I am, um, I think um, I, I'm not pro big government. I think the government uh, should um, be restricted in terms of what it does. However, there are certain things that I think the government should do. For example, the administration of justice. Right. Uh, or uh, protection mili the military, um, the prison system, except for maybe certain areas of it, like the catering and the, you know those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and the control of borders. I, I don't think that should be outsourced uh, to private contractors, right? Um, airline security, like the TSA, right? Those things, but especially the administration of justice, right? Um, everything else, who knows, right? I mean, there might be a better way of uh, delivering those services through um, private enterprise. Um, so uh, the question is, I think, um, does it speak to fundamental features of what a country is, right? Like the United States, for example. Well, I think, um, yes, of course, we should have a central bank, like the Federal Reserve. We should have an army. We should have a, a police. We should have um, the courts and so on and so forth. Those things, absolutely. But everything else, um, perhaps private enterprise can provide it better. For example, let me just give you a very simple example. The renewal of your um, driver's license or the renewal of your out of tax. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand why the government has to do that. That could be performed by a private contract. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps more efficiently because I don't think that's mission critical and I don't think that's so sensitive that it needs to be conducted by the government. I don't know whether I address your question in all of its complexities, but that's that's what I think. Right. So I, I think there's just certain things that are kind of inherently tied to a geography. So, so even if we live in a world where there are these distributed nations and, and it's common to have a citizenship with one of them, there's like when when you need people with guns to show up and protect you from a criminal, that has to happen where you're at. That's just spatially located. It's just the kind of thing that somebody has to be there for. And so maybe you'll see, in addition to education and uh, the world of work, maybe citizenship and governance will also be uh, operated on kind of a hybrid model where you have these relatively lightweight um, sovereigns that control the administration of force and justice over a particular geographic area, but that otherwise you might have several overlapping citizenships with uh, digital... Uh, oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So, yes, I mean, I think we will continue to have a, a citizenship or at least one citizenship. Uh, but, yeah, maybe thanks to the digital world, we can participate in so many other things that other countries have to offer. And so we're going to be operating uh, at the intersection of many of these things. But at the end of the day, right, um, you still will have a government protecting your rights and you will have some obligations towards that government, like, for example, paying taxes, right? Okay. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, if anything, I, I would hope that that would put a certain amount of pressure on on governments to behave better. I mean, because they know that oh, absolutely. these populations are more mobile and quite a lot of this they can get through, you know, the Estonian government or the Norwegian government, which just has right. which has, has made all of all of their services available over a blockchain that they control. And that, you know, I, I could just get through them at any time. So hopefully that will incentivize the local government to to behave. Yeah, I've often I've often talked through that scenario of people tend to vote with their feet. And uh, if a country makes a, a bad decision sometime in the future, then 
over the next week, 200 million people leave that country and uh, and suddenly they're left with no people left in the country. That, that, that has, it has the potential to be that radical sometime in the future. And, and especially when we, we move into an era where we have um, drone taxis that we can just, uh, borders become relatively meaningless because we can just fly over them. And uh, I think that that changes uh, kind of our relationship with um, kind of this barrier that prevents us from thinking on the other side of that, that border. Um, all of these things, I think, are going to start uh, challenging us in new and interesting ways moving forward. Yeah. So then, then the the other big factor that's coming into play right now is is the fact that we're we're trying to actually um, move people onto either the moon or onto Mars, and there's there's a huge effort in that direction. And so having people on another planet um, radically changes how we think about uh, life on Earth here. And uh, having competing systems on other planets also challenges us in new and interesting ways. I don't know if you've given any thought to that, but uh, Elon Musk is saying that we can do it by 2024, which seems awfully quick. <laughs> yeah, that seems uh, too quick. Um, but um, that's going to happen at some point. But I don't think it's going to take uh, 50 years. Right. Uh, the place we're going, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, four years seems like a little bit like sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. Elon's right. become kind of famous for his uh, ludicrously accelerated timelines. That they're going to build the biggest rocket the world's ever seen in four or five months. And uh, you know, the, the, yeah. the interesting thing though is that they do end up making history with how quickly they get it done. So he just sets this ridiculous pace that nobody really thinks they're going to achieve, and they don't achieve it. But what they do achieve is still pretty spectacular on the other side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, is is the book you just recently published. Um, was it 2030 AD? What the world's going to look like in uh, uh, yeah. the yeah. biggest trends that will collide and, and reshape the world. I'm, I'm trying to read it off to the side. <laughs> I'm trying to read it in my notes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, well, why, don't, why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, about the book and the trends and how you think the world's going to look in, uh, what is it, eight years now, nine years now? Yeah. Well, we actually covered a lot of the ground in the book already in this conversation. But uh, the book is um, all about these population trends, economic trends, and technological trends that are going to fundamentally reshape everything. But, you know, the point that I want to emphasize, which is really the, the central argument in the book, is that you cannot analyze each of these types of trends in isolation of the others. So you have to connect the dots. And that's where you start to see um, the big transformations that lie ahead. And yeah, um, you know, it's perhaps hard to believe that in just nine years, we're going to be in a completely different situation. But I think people are already starting to get uh, the idea that um, the world that we came from, um, it's gone it's behind us. And that um, there's so many things out of whack right now. There's so moving parts that within a very, very short period of time, we're going to be, we want to find ourselves in a completely different situation. And unless we start adjusting to that, it's going to be really, really difficult to operate in that new world. Um, so we've covered several of the trends here, population aging, uh, you know, the rise of emerging markets like China, um, digital platforms and so on and so forth. But consider how they come together to produce a very different situation. Let me just give you a very simple example. Now we live longer, right? So a 60 year old American can expect to live another 24 years. That's another lifetime. 
Not only that, we also stay healthy for a much longer period of time, right? So a 60-year-old today is in much better physical and mental shape than a 60-year-old a generation or two generations ago. And then the third thing is technology is making knowledge obsolete, right? People are losing their jobs because whatever it is that they did, their skills are no longer as good. So if you put all of those things together, if you connect the dots, then here's the prediction. The prediction is that in the near future, we're going to see that people are going to go back to school several times. They're going to first go to school when they're young, but then by the time they reach age 40, they're going to realize whatever it is that they learned has become obsolete. So they're right. going to go back to school. And then when they turn 60, they're going to think, oh my goodness, I still have another 24 years to live. I haven't been able to save enough. I need to continue working. But hey, whatever it is that I learned when I was 40, no longer is valid, no longer is useful. So they'll go back to school again. So this is just one example of how these trends come together to, I think, create a completely different situation. What, what do you think would be the most surprising prediction? If somebody came back from 2030 and laid out a, a, just a panorama of what the world is like, what do you think would be the most surprising thing to come out of that? I think it will be something that we've already covered and that you triggered with a question, which is the decoupling of who we are from where we are. Oh, so yeah. geography will lose meaning, uh, this virtuality that we're going through, uh, even to the point that you suggested or you hinted that we may be Americans, but at the same time, we're Estonians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think it's the uh, separation of who we are from the place where we live, which, of course, for the longest time has been a defining feature of our lives, right? right? So you live in a big city, you live in Brooklyn, or you live in um, southern Kansas. That makes a big impact. But I think virtuality just changes the the, the landscape there. Yeah. Yeah. Does that does that mean uh, cultures become less meaningful then? I think it means we can liberate ourselves from geography, and as human beings, we can participate in communities uh, of other human beings that are anywhere else. So TV, for example, or radio, enabled us to, in real time, get a sense as to what was going on all over the world. But we couldn't participate in that. You see what I'm saying? Right. right. However, uh, the telephone, you know, was a clumsy step in the other direction. But really, this starts, I think, with social media, right? Right. And now with Zoom and, and with whatever comes next, right? Um, I think that's going to have uh, really, really important implications for the way we live our lives. Yeah. So in other words, for example, somebody in rural Kansas who be part of a global classroom and be learning about the Italian Renaissance with people from 50 different locations around the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that would be beautiful. And um, I mean, I, I suspect that you'll see more subcultures, more microcultures and cultures that change much more quickly. 
And, and to some extent, I suspect that's always kind of been the case. So we, we have this sort of idea of French culture, but I imagine that if you went around to all the different places in France, you, you would actually see lots of different French subcultures that all change relatively quickly. A lot is hidden behind that abstraction of just talking about French culture. We, we kind of know what that means, but there's a lot of complexity there. And I think that much of that will just come out on the open because it, it will be on the blockchain. It will be in virtual nations. It'll be in you know something you see in virtual reality or, or as a part of interacting with people from all over the world in these global classrooms. And it will just be much more on the nose that this is how cultures work and how they function. Oh, absolutely. And uh, once again, this is the interesting thing. We tend to think about technologies, digital technologies as being global and globalizing, something that essentially makes the world smaller. But at the same time, these digital technologies have led to a proliferation of local cultures and subcultures. Why? Well, for example, imagine before digital technology, how difficult it was for a local uh, rock band to record a song and to make it available to the world, right? right? It was very difficult, right? But with digital technology and with the internet and with YouTube and with all the rest, it's so easy. So actually a lot of local artists, this, this is just an illustration of what you just said, a lot of local artists now can make a living, right? By producing, you know, um, you know uh, songs from their culture, right? in their language using whatever instruments they have there and the influences and reach a global audience right so it is helping the proliferation of uh, subcultures and, and, and localized highly localized cultures absolutely yeah and uh, I, I think there's a lot of, of really productive thought around how to structure technology and infrastructure moving forward to encourage exactly those sorts of trends. So in, I think it was episode nine, we interviewed the CEO of Klon and they're building uh, Urbit, which is basically a way for you to stand up your own servers and create your own internet-based micro communities that really no one else can hack or touch. It's, it's just a way of creating like a Hamlet online then you can invite yeah. people to. And uh, I, I'm really excited to see more of what comes out of that as people rethink the basic structures of the technologies that we use, how we use them, what the coordination mechanisms are. I think there's just a lot of fruitful research to be done in that direction. Absolutely. I completely agree. Well, fantastic. Uh, we are, we are coming up on the hour. Are there any uh, last questions? Thomas, do you have a last question? You, you look like you're trying to jump in there. Uh, real real quick, um, uh, as a futurist, I use a number of different techniques to help uh, um, open my mind about things coming down the, in our path in the future. Um, are there any techniques that you that you like to use that um, or that you've developed on your own? Well, for me, um, you know, Given all of the change that is going on, what is really important is to step outside of your area of expertise on a daily basis and try to learn uh, from other areas. So I force myself uh, every night before I go to sleep to read on my phone um, for five to 10 minutes about something that I know very little about. So okay. one day it could be dinosaurs, another day <laughs> it could be pottery, whatever it is. So I look for something on the internet and then I read it for five or 10 minutes. And that really helps me branch out. That really helps me, you know, open the mind to other influences, to other issues, to other topics. Because if I only did exactly what I do, I would just, you know, uh, working and reworking on my mind, the same ideas, the same topics, the same issues all the time. 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And also, um, I forget where I got the quote because I didn't I didn't attribute the source, but somewhere or another you're you're on record saying that uh, if you want to accurately forecast the future, follow the money and follow the babies. And we've we've covered both things pretty extensively in this episode. Yeah. Uh, Well, we, we really appreciate your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great meeting you online. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.